Good morning, church. Our reading this morning is Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. If you would have a seat and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask you simply this morning that as we stand in front of your word, uh, its ability to uh, divide bone and marrow, Lord, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, and Lord, that this morning uh, we together as City Church would be uh, um, reproved, that we would be encouraged, that we would be built up, that we would be called to greater and deeper faith. Lord, we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we really this morning must get to one thing right away, because in our modern sensibilities, we hear things like this. We see stories in scripture and we want to explain them away, don't we? We see a, a passage in scripture and say, well, this has been handed down. It's been uh, translated. What was really happening here is that uh, this young boy had epilepsy. It wasn't a demonic possession, but we really have to rid ourselves of that this morning. Why? Because we're told so in scripture. It's simply a matter of, ironically this morning we'll find faith to take this piece of scripture as it stands. This is no seizure, it's a demon. 
In fact, it's specifically a demon. It's not demons. We've seen other people, even here in Mark, where they were possessed by multiple demons. And these demons had different effects. And what we see here is, is that this demon in particular made him mute, made him deaf, even tried to destroy him by casting him into fire, burning him to death by casting him into water, trying to destroy him by drowning. This is a horrific situation. And what we can't do is simply come to this passage and think, oh, this is uh, just a spiritual explanation for something that was uh, really happening in an earthly, in a material world. These people weren't dumb. In fact, in Matthew chapter four, we even see side by side that uh, the Lord Jesus has come to actually cure things like both seizures and also demonic possession, standing side by side. So we actually know that scripture is not dumb to the fact that there was epilepsy. It's not just trying to describe epilepsy in a spiritual way. They see distinctions, and in this case, it was a demon. Years ago, I led a mission trip from this church to uh, Ethiopia, and near the end of that trip, we came to a a city uh, named uh, Waleso, and this city was dark. Uh, I can't uh, really find words to describe it, but on the way into this city, you could feel the darkness. We had just come from this beautiful, uh, very rural, area uh, named Gunshiri. There was a, uh, an orphanage there that we stayed at for several days and that place was filled with light and life and we came into Waleso and it was dark. And several of you are familiar with this story, but as you know, I'm not above repeating myself. You may have heard this actually years ago in a sermon. This is one of the uh, defining moments in my life. I'll hopefully never forget this situation. A pastor took us to an outrageously impoverished area of that city where there were these ramshackle huts with dirt floors and the only purpose of the tin roof was really to keep the sun off because it wouldn't have kept any rain out. And he took us to this place where there were two ladies in this really impoverished section of the city that were taking in orphans into this small room of a hut that was divided in two. And when we were asked to come into the room, I saw the darkest, most miserable, seemingly demonic, tragic sight I've ever seen or probably will ever be likely to see. You see, there was this uh, young Ethiopian girl, not more of 20, uh, who was tearing her clothes off and began hurting the other children. And in an area like this, where there was only one psychiatric hospital in the entire country, and it was hours away by car and days away by walking, uh, there wasn't services to provide for this girl. So whether it was schizophrenia or whether it was something more, the only option that they had, I just can't, can't even get over it because it was so terrible. The only option that they had was to bind the girl with her hands behind her back to a pole. I mean, we can sit in a modern place and maybe even try to judge that, but when you don't have resources or any kind of thing, this was the option that they found most available and the pastor had led us there to pray for this young lady. And so we walk in, and though I'm uncertain that it was demonic, uh, the signs were there. There was violence, there was nakedness, there was sounds that I had never heard, there were contortion. 
And what I saw there was an enslavement of a person. Again, whether mentally, whether um, whether spiritually or both, there was an enslavement there. And all of us have a different reference point coming into this conversation for spiritual things, don't we? Some of us, maybe uh, the most demonic thing that we've seen has been in the addiction of a family member that just can't be broken. And it seems as though it's not just merely biological. There's something that they're struggling with that's outside of the material realm. For the others of us, it may be just uh, deep and sinking depression and you feel like you're followed around, not by uh, mere chemicals or synapses, but by something spiritual. And you've seen it. You have a different reference point. And whatever your reference point is in the spiritual realm, what we see here in this passage is that the spiritual realm is real and Jesus is not afraid to enter it. Don't we? And and ultimately, what I've extracted from this passage, if you want to get down to the bare bones of it, is that Jesus frees the faithless. Jesus, and Jesus alone, frees the faithless. And what we're going to need to do this morning to kind of see where that is, because it even sounds to our gospel ears, maybe not fully true, right? He frees the faithless? I thought he freed the faithful. I want to take us on a road this morning where we examine the different types of unbelief that we see in this passage. We see Jesus' healing faithfulness. And then lastly, we'll take a look at the passage that we didn't quite get to, the verses 30 and 32, the resurrected life. So it's the types of unbelief, Jesus' healing faithfulness, and the resurrected life. But first, we've kind of got to get into the passage. If you haven't been with us, we can take a look at verse 14 there and see that it starts off and we need need a little bit of context. And when they came to the disciples, they, if you were with us last week, as Peter, James, and John with Jesus descending the mountain of the transfiguration. So they have just seen Jesus transfigured in front of them. They've seen several of the forefathers and prophets gathering around and attesting to Jesus's lordship. They've heard the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son. I'm well pleased with him. And they're coming down and you've got to think that Peter, James, and John are like brimming with excitement to tell these other disciples what it is that they have seen. They're returning, their minds are blown, and what they find disciples are arguing. They're arguing. There's the disciples that are left over. There's the scribes. There's the crowd that has gathered around them. And for us to kind of extract what might be happening here, we've got to go all the way back to chapter six, verse seven, where Jesus has sent them out. He sent them out two by two. He's given them authority over unclean spirits. In verse 13 in chapter 6 says that when they went, they proclaimed repentance. They cast out many demons, not just a few, they cast out many, and they also healed many who were sick. So this is what they've been after. And so this uh, crowd in verse 15 back in our chapter was greatly amazed to find Jesus returning to these disciples. That's who they had really probably come to see is Jesus. But they find the disciples and they're arguing with them. And Jesus asks a simple question. What are you arguing about with them? What is it that you're arguing about here? I've come back from this uh, glorious setup on top of the mountain. I've come straight back into worldly woes. And what we find are four types of unbelief. They're not the only types of unbelief, but they're the ones that I see in this passage. 
So I want to read again for us this set of verses, starting in, chapter, uh, starting in verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. So Jesus responds in a very strange way to all of this. He says, you faithless generation. And you got to be thinking this poor man has come in with his son. He hasn't left or uh, abandoned his son. He hasn't lost all hope for his son. He's trying to find something that will cure his son who had had this demon evidently from early childhood that was trying to destroy his child. And we can read over that and think, huh, or we can put it in the context of our own family and think about what kind of terror you would live in daily if you were to wake up at 3 a.m. and find your child trying to uh, get into fire to be burnt or drowned in water. It would just be terrible. And, and here, Jesus responds by saying, you poor man. No, no, he goes, you faithless generation. Why is it that he would do this? Except for the fact that he means to teach us something about faith. We find that the occasion for the argument is between the disciples, the scribes, and the crowd is a man whose only son is suffering but we find Jesus exclaiming that the heart problem leading to this conflict is not the occasion, but rather the faithlessness and unbelief. We've got to do a little bit of work here. The first unbelief that I see in this passage is the disciples' unbelief. They couldn't drive out the demon. They couldn't heal the boy. In fact, if you want to go down to verses 28 and 29, we actually find that Jesus gives the reason, right? You remember at the end of the passage, the disciples come to Jesus and privately ask him, hey, we've, we've cast out many demons. We just got back from this mission trip where we were healing people and it was like pew, 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 finger guns. All of these demons are going away. And now we get to this point and they go, we, we can't do it. We can't do it. What is it that's happening here? Jesus says, you've forgotten something. It can't be cast out. This is one of the ones that can't be cast out by anything but prayer. You see, what had happened is, is that the disciples had driven out many demons and healed many, and now they're forgetting to pray. They're forgetting that it's not their power 
that God simply anointed them with authority over these demons and the ability to heal. And they decided that what they were going to do when this father comes up is goes, we got this, we got this. And they're trying to do it, it's not happening. What we find is, is that the first example of faithlessness in this passage is self-reliance. And I'll give you a little clue here because these four types of unbelief, if you want to write those down, I provided some space, is the first type of unbelief that we see is self-reliance in the disciples. They had come to a place where they were prayerless. But the scribes don't you know, do anything better. They're coming in and adding gas to the fire. We're not told exactly what was happening, but in verse 15, we are told that the scribes are arguing with them. So they're not, they're not helping this situation. They're coming in and they have this position of power, this position of prestige, right? And they're in a place where they now see the disciples struggling. Maybe there's a conversation afoot about what's going to happen in, uh, in this situation. Who has the power to cast out demons? And the scribes are at very least, they're arguing with the disciples over the situation that then we see the father come out and say, this is, this is what's happening. It's my son. So what we see is that this power that the scribes had had, these religious leaders were instigating division in order to protect it. The scribes did not uh, recognize the disciples' authority because they did not recognize Jesus' authority. And so the second type of of unbelief that I see in this this passage is self-preservation. you'll you'll be clued in to hear that all of these examples of unbelief start with self, don't they? This kind of self-preservation was trying to keep and accumulate as much power and prestige and ability to, uh, to, to have control over this group of people. And here, these disciples are about to do this miraculous thing. A crowd gathers around them. They can't do it. And so the scribes are sitting there trying to teach people, I imagine, these are not the people with authority. Why? we have the authority. They're the ones that are in control and they're going to preserve themselves. The third type comes from the father. And it's subtle, but it's there. Verse 17, I brought my son to you, he says to Jesus. Now this does exemplify some amount of faith. He's not, he's not just uh, going around and, and, um, and asking you know, random people. He brought him to Jesus. But then he also really subtly calls him teacher. Now that's not abnormal. Lots of people call Jesus teacher. And and of course, Jesus is a teacher. But let me ask you a question. What teacher do you bring your demon-possessed son to? Ultimately, they were not recognizing his lordship. Ultimately, the father has brought his only son, who's had this demon since birth, this tragic situation. He hasn't given up, but we also get the idea that he's willing to try anything. Verse 18, so I asked your disciples, and they were not able. And then he says something that betrays his heart and his motivations. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And on the first reading, you can kind of go, yeah, no faithlessness there. He's just simply being humble and submissive. But Jesus sees through to the heart, and he, he, he noticed that there's an element of unbelief. And Jesus says, if you can, if you can. 
And this is not a pompousness in Jesus. Jesus is reciting back to this man his own words and then says, all things are possible for the one who believes. In fact, in the other gospels, we see the same story in the famous words about the mustard seed of faith being able to move a mountain from here over to there. And we get the idea that faith is really important. And Jesus really wants his disciples to have faith. He wants his followers to have faith. And here he is saying, if you can do anything, the father's own words betray him. There is at least a reticence to give himself fully over to Jesus. And at most, maybe even a cynicism about Jesus's ability to do this. And what we find is that the third, the third type of unbelief is self-consciousness. I'll be honest with you, this is the one that I, that I probably get the most uh, why? Because I, I've got this reputation to protect. I don't want to overextend. I don't want to seem foolish in the moment. And so a lot of times, I honestly don't throw myself completely into something faithfully because I want to reserve a little bit of myself so that if something goes wrong, I'm not to blame. I don't look foolish. I didn't go too far out on that limb. And so what we see here in the Father is a little bit of consciousness in him. Fourth and finally, and, and, and this one is different. This is not a matter of fault. It's an effect of the fall. If we look at the sun, we'll observe in verse 20. When the spirit saw him, that's Jesus, convulsed the boy and fell, rolled, and the mouth. This kind of faithlessness, and I, I know that it's a little over-eager trying to describe it as this, but this kind of faithlessness, result of spiritual enslavement. It's a matter of unregeneracy in the heart. It's a matter of the fallenness of creation. This, this boy, by the effects of the fall, didn't have the opportunity to have faith. Why? He was possessed by a demon. His heart was uh, possessed by a demon. There was no faith in him because literally this fallen world, sin, Satan, evil, demons had infiltrated and made destruction there. So this type of faithlessness is not something that we cast onto the child and say, uh, this child is evil. What it is instead is something that we realistically take a look at and we say, there is fallenness here. There is faithlessness here. There's an absence of lordship in the heart of this son. This faithlessness is a result of spiritual enslavement and unregeneracy. And what we see here is not a self-focusedness, but just a lack of self-possession. And so after going through all of these, I want to ask a very simple question of us. Do you struggle with faithlessness? Do you struggle with faithlessness? Do you enter into difficult circumstances that the Lord has called you into only to find that you are prayerless in that situation? That you're self-reliant as it were, that you are dependent on yourself, your own motivation, your own stick to your own brilliance, your own mind, your own capabilities, your own capacities, your own character, your own whatever it is. Are you relying on yourself? It's faithlessness. Are you trying to protect power? Are you controlling? Are you manipulative? When you enter into hard situations, do you find that it is really hard to relinquish your grasp on the control of your own life? 
It's not as much self-reliance as it is that you're trying to preserve yourself. You're trying to keep something to yourself. Or maybe, like me, you're just too pragmatic. You're, 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 you're too uh, practical. You're too realistic to enter into something like this and go, oh, it's probably a demon. It's like, no, I don't want to seem foolish about this. I don't want to, I got to hedge my bet here. I've got to make sure that my self-consciousness of my own ego is protected in this moment in its faithlessness. For others of us, and it would really actually help us to be specific about this. For some of us, it's a non-self-possession. It's an unregeneracy in your heart. It's not as much that you are doing something uh, wrong by way of not having uh, faith when God's calling you to uh, do something specific. It's that you're not sure if God exists at all. You certainly haven't submitted yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's it's not a matter of uh, being one of the disciples. Actually, in your life, maybe you're the son. You can't control it. Your heart is not a place where the gospel has taken root, where life has been able to flourish, and instead what it is is you just don't know Jesus. And here, lovingly, kindly, tenderly, what we find is is that Jesus is speaking to the faithlessly, self-reliant, self-preserving, self-conscious, non-self-possessed people of the world. He's speaking to you. So, so maybe for you, it's not one of these areas. It's like, I'm faithless in all of those areas. It just depends on the set of circumstances. And, and you just go, man, you know, I am faithless. And the good news that you need to hear is our second point this morning. And that is that Jesus is healingly faithful. What we want to do this morning is ex- uh, just explore Jesus's healing faithfulness. So what we found is, is that the problem is faithlessness. And it is serious. Jesus even expresses some amount of exacerbation with this. How long am I to be with you, you faithless generation? What we, what we see is, is not an unkindness in Jesus, but an unrelentingness that faithlessness is deadly. We even see this in the boy. The father says it is often cast him into fire and into water. To what? To destroy him. Faithlessness will destroy us. If you'll visit with me in verse 23, we see this. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, And convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Does Jesus have power to heal? Yes! Jesus has healing power and it comes out of his faithfulness. Faithlessness is deadly, but faithfulness in Jesus is life-giving. All things are possible for the one who believes in Jesus is the faithful one. 
Jesus prayerfully. We, we, we don't see it in this passage, but you know that he didn't come to the disciples afterwards and say, this is, this is the type of demon that only comes out by you know, prayerfulness. And you're like, well, he didn't even pray. It's like, no, he prayed. It just wasn't recorded in scripture. He is being prayerful. He is being faithful. He is being powerful. He is spiritually commanding the demon to come out, faithfully knowing that it would. And, and evidently, the spectacle is so horrific that most of the crowd said that the child was dead. But then what happens? Jesus takes him by the hand, he lifts him up, and what happens to him? He arose. He arose. Now, that's not a word that we should hear as Christians and uh, not go real deep on, right? We, we're not going to get to that point and go, yeah, yeah, he, he stood up. He stood up, no, 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 that word is really specific. He arose. Faithlessness seeks to destroy everyone, but the faithful one heals with faithfulness. The faithful one heals the faithless. And if you hear that word arose and go, this has to go deeper. Come on, preacher, come on, tell me. Scripture, let me know that this goes deeper. What we have to do is finish the passage. Verse 30, we didn't read this earlier, so I want you to visit with me there. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Why? For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. They, he, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to even ask. What we find this morning in our third point is the power of the resurrection life. The resurrection life. Sometimes Jesus speaks in parables. There's actually a few parables where there is no consensus amongst Christian theologians about what the parable's even about. And then sometimes Jesus goes, the son of man is going to be killed and then he's going to rise. No parable there, no question marks, no, no thoughts, no intrigue, no uh, mincing of words. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. The faithful will be put to death. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. And that's why the 11 disciples, sans Judas, were throwing a party outside of the tomb. No, that's not at all what happened, right? That's not at all what happened. This passage specifically tells you they did not understand the saying. And they were too afraid to ask him. Now, what, what's the one thing that changed between the time that, uh, you know, Jesus died and then rose and now? Why, why are they faithless? Why are they still faithless when Jesus is telling them in specific words? Well, that's a good question. Let's talk about this. Nope. After witnessing this impossible exorcism, the one that they could not do, they did not understand, they were too afraid to ask. And what I find there is just a little bit of comfort. 
knowing that the disciples got a front row seat to a pageant where Jesus resurrects this little son, and then Jesus uses the opportunity to say, the son of man is going to die, and then he's going to rise, and the only, the only thing that they could do is ignorantly disbelieve. And, and if you're thinking that, that you know, kind of ignorance, like calling this ignorant unbelief is too harsh, let us remember this is the disciples' account of themselves. They're, they're, they had every opportunity to paint themselves in uh, glorious majesties of faith, right? They could have written all of this to say, and we believed him. And, and here, Mark is going, we had no idea what he was talking about. Why? They didn't have the spirit. The, the Holy Spirit comes in and illuminates this passage for us. We hear on the other side of both the resurrection and also gloriously endowed with the Spirit of God interpreting these words. If it today, if you have ears to hear, if you have eyes to see that the Jesus, the, the God of this universe came, died as a faithless one, but was risen as the faithful one. If you have ears to hear and eyes to see, know that that is the work of the Spirit. And it is, it is no less miraculous, it's no less miraculous than if Jesus came in here today and cast out a demon. That kind of faith is miraculous. Look at the world of death around us and tell me that the work of the Spirit is extraordinary. Though ordinary, we feel it every day, it is extraordinarily miraculous. Praise God. What I want to do now, though, is show you what this kind of transition looks like. And I want to use the disciples shortly after the resurrection in John chapter 20. You don't need to go there. I'm going to read it for us. On the evening of that day, what was that day? It was Easter Sunday. We're headed towards it here in a few weeks. We're going to gloriously celebrate the resurrection, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <laughs> Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now Thomas, verse 24, one of the disciples called the twin was not there with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is good old fashioned modern skepticism, right? We feel it. Here we see Thomas. We see him doubting. Why? Because it's extremely unusual for people to raise from the grave, isn't it? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, are you Thomas? This morning, are you identifying with Thomas? Hear Jesus' words, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you. I pray that that's you this morning. Anybody in this room seen the resurrected Jesus with your own eyes? I have not. Other than here beholding his resurrection in the word of God, but by the spirit, by the power of the spirit, indwelling my heart and producing faithfulness in me, I have not seen, and yet I still believe. I pray that that is your case this morning. Are you tempted to believe that your faithfulness would disappear by seeing a miracle? That's not what happened with the disciples. Have you prayed that the Lord would, if you take this father's words, I believe, help my unbelief. If you, if you take that as, and I think you can, his, his request to show him a miracle. I believe that you can do this. I just, I want so much for my son to be free of this demon. Prove it to me. Prove your messiahship to me. If there are little tethers of unbelief that still exist in your heart, and I know that they do, because that is just the process of being human and living in tension with this, I believe, help my unbelief. What we find is that Jesus frees us from faithlessness in the resurrection. Jesus frees us from faithlessness in the resurrection. So if you want to, you can cross out the title of this sermon. You can cross out the the thesis there at the very top of the thing. If you want to understand what I'm honestly on about when I say that Jesus heals the faithless, this is what I mean. I mean that Jesus frees us from faithlessness. There was nothing that this boy could do. Jesus just had to cast out the demon, offer him his hand, lift him up, and he arose. There wasn't something that was in that boy that produced that in himself. If you go to a cemetery and you cry out for the dead, if you say, dead, rise, if you command them with your mouth, what can they do on their own? Resurrection depends on Jesus, and that's why he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died? Do you believe that he rose again from the dead? Do you believe that he ascended to the right hand of God and is coming again? Do you believe in what the Apostles' Creed says is the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting? Do you believe it? I hope that you do. Your life eternal depends on this kind of faithfulness. And it's not yours, it's Jesus's. I remember praying in faith for the young lady in Ethiopia, but I did not see her healed, raised up. I I prayed in faith. A group from this church prayed around this young lady. And in my wildest imaginations about what God can do is that he healed her. But I don't know that I prayed in faith. But I'll tell you of a story here in this body where I was faithlessness. I, I mean, embodied. I was unfaithful in my prayers. We had a, uh, a young lady come into our church. 
Her name was Sarah, and she had, uh, she had had a hard life. And she was involved in a lot of new age stuff. There were crystals, there were all kinds of things. And she was invited into one of our groups, and she was really well loved there. And within about a year's time or so, she had come into faith, praise God. Her and her daughter were baptized in this church, as a part of this church. And after her baptism, she had invited her estranged husband. They were still married, but they had not lived together for years, a half a decade, if memory serves. And she invited him to their baptism in a pool of one of our members, and, um, and, and James, was his name, and he came and he was severely troubled. And, and, and what developed, as only the Spirit can, was a desire in this uh, young woman, in Sarah, to be reunited, to be reconciled in marriage to James. Just an impossible kind of thing. If you're a pragmatist like me, you think never could happen. And yet, for about a year, they, uh, they, we, we counseled them. We became friends with them. Uh, he even moved back into the home at one point. He was severely troubled. To the point where one day I got a call from Sarah saying that James had attempted to end his life and we didn't know whether or not he had at the time. And so me and another faithful man in this congregation named Stephen Lloyd, who is on the field uh, in Nepal, uh, one of my dearest friends, a far more faithful man than me. We, we rushed to the house where we weren't sure, but it became increasingly clear that he had ended his life. And we prayed. We prayed, and I just remember Stephen saying, let's pray for resurrection. And my heart broke in that moment, because if I'm being honest, I did not pray that prayer with faith. I was so conflicted, I just thought, how could we pray for that? It is so, death seems so final. How in the world could we give ourselves to pray for that? It's a haunting moment. It's one that Jesus has redeemed and, um, and everything. I don't, I don't feel like I did necessarily anything wrong in that moment, but it just, I remember Stephen's faithfulness. I mean, he just believed that God could raise him from the dead, and I just wasn't there. I was so conflicted. How could we be that foolish? How could we believe something like that, that the Lord could do something like that? I had a failure of courage, a failure of faith in those moments. But here is where Jesus comes to all of us in those moments, all of us, and says, all things are indeed possible for the one who believes. All things, not some things, not, not just the right things, not even the ones that you pray with the right heart. God could have resurrected James. I believe that now. I, I don't know that I did at the time. I, in fact, I'm fairly confident that I didn't. But the main point of all of this is that Jesus frees us from that kind of faithlessness. He raised the boy to forecast his resurrection and what we need to know, what we need to know in our bones is that if Jesus raised from the dead, then nothing is impossible for him. Amen. That girl in Ethiopia could be 
healed James, made a profession of faith. We didn't baptize him in this church. He could be living a resurrected life. There's no way for me to know or tell. It may be that God took those prayers and said, yeah, I will do that, but not in the way that you're asking for me to. It may be that James is living in eternity with him. Maybe it is your marriage. Maybe it is a coworker that you think is just too far gone. How could, how could God possibly interrupt that kind of devastation in somebody's life? How could we be healed from the inside out? How could we deal with this mental crisis? How could we deal with the finances in the state that they are? And what we need to know is that if Jesus is the resurrection and life, nothing is impossible for him. And the word nothing means nothing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, may we join with the man from this story and invite you to help our unbelief. Father, you have initiated, inaugurated, and instilled a faith in the people of City Church. We do indeed believe, but whether it is the habits of our daily life and distraction, whether it is things that are far too big for us to comprehend, Lord, we find ourselves faithless time in, time again, Father. And so we ask that you would help our unbelief. Father God, we ask you that you would instill this kind of faithfulness in the people of City Church, and Lord, that it would not stop or end here, but Lord, that we would be faithful to send to the nations to tell others about the faithful one, that we would go out into the schools and hospitals and offices and carpools of this city and tell them about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, his ability to resurrect Father, help us to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Help us to tell our children about it. Help us to build a community that lives and dies by it. Lord, help our unbelief. We pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.